Broadcasting live from the U Seminar, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. I'm Garrett Strother. I'm Ricardo. What up? Oh, Happy New Year, gentlemen. Happy, happy New, New Year, Year indeed. Happy New Year indeed. But for right now, we've got some pretty sad news. <laughs> this week's a bummer. We've only got a few pieces of news, but two of them are rough. First up, Dawn Wells, best known as Marianne from Gilligan's Island has died of COVID-19 at the age of 89. Very sad. Correct me if I'm mistaken, but she was the last living member of the original Gilligan's Island cast, no? Tina Louise, who plays Ginger, is still alive. Oh, that's right, yes. So you're saying there's still hope for a Gilligan's reboot? She could make a little winky cameo in, if they ever do a modern Gilligan's Island, like you said, Ricardo, like uh, the end of Wonder Woman. Re- real quick, break down the, the characters in Gilligan's again for me. Oh, okay, so sit right back and you'll hear the tale. The tale <laughs> of a fateful... <laughs> um, okay, there is... I thought you were going to do the whole thing. I, I mean, if it wouldn't take up several minutes of this podcast, I would. <laughs> um, there is the Skipper, who is angry, and then there is Gilligan, the first mate, who is completely inept. There is the professor who builds all of their gadgets and all the things that they use to get up off the island until Gilligan messes it up. There's the millionaire, Thurston Howell III, and his wife, Lovey. Then there's Marianne, the, you know, girl next door, small town America, who is off on her big trip to Hawaii. And finally, there is Ginger Grant, the movie star. And so Don Wells played Marianne. I only ask, because now we gotta, we gotta do it. You wanna reboot Gilligan's Island? Gimme. I think this is one of our early, early bits. Like, when we first started the show, we, we talked about rebooting the, the old Gilligan's Island. Seamus and I are actually, coincidentally, Ricardo, we're talking about this before the show. I see no place for a Gilligan's Island reboot. <laughs> like, I just don't for as long well, as it there's did. no point to any of them, Garrett. We're still gonna do it. <laughs> I was saying, like, it needs to be, like, a a this-is-the-end style where a bunch of comedians play themselves and get stranded on an island together, a la Gilligan's Island. You know what? Honestly, I'd way rather see Seamus' pitch, but, like, do it bewitched style. So it's a bunch of comedians that are going to make a Gilligan's Island movie that gets stranded on an island, like, so kind of like bewitched meets Tropic Thunder. So, like, you've got Seth Rogen's gonna play <laughs> the Skipper, Jay Baruchel's gonna be Gilligan. You know, you get it. You said most people would hate that, but I kind of love what you're saying here, Garrett. Yeah, man, I want you to keep going. This sounds actually <laughs> fun. I'd watch this. Who do you get as uh, the millionaire? Okay, so you need an older comedian. I mean, if he were not dead, I would say Fred Willard would be my... Mm. That'd be really good. Maybe like a Eugene Levy. What about, but hear me out though, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, comedy's favorite married couple who aren't married in real life. That could be pretty good. Bill Murray, I feel like he wears bucket hats a lot. Isn't there a character (laughs) that wears bucket hats in that show? Oh my god, Bill Murray is Gilligan. This changes everything. (laughs) We gotta start over. Old Gilligan? Boom, that's what it's called. It's just called Gilligan. It's like Logan. (laughs) Oh no. There is a Gilligan's Island reboot movie already. Wait, really? It wasn't a 
reboot in the sense that we would think about it, but in the 70s, they made Rescue from Gilligan's Island, where the original cast, except for Tina Louise, came back, and they made a TV movie where they actually get off the island. Whoa, that is not what I was expecting. Did they really get off, or did they end up still on the island? Well, they get off, they are back to living their normal lives, and it shows how all of them are so maladjusted, and they are just all sad, and, and wish oh. that they had each other back, and then they go out on another cruise just as a reunion, and then they end up shipwrecked again I'm back on the island. <laughs> and they're all happier for it, I, I assume. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> That's messed up. <laughs> they give these sitcom characters that. psychological damage. I've loved talking about Gilligan's Island. I'm very sad about Don Wells, but let's move on, shall we? Rest in peace, Don. You're a legend. Another piece of really just a heart-wrenching news. Renowned voice actor Tom Kane, known for his roles of Woodhouse on Archer, multiple roles on Star Wars The Clone Wars, including Yoda and the narrator who opens every episode, and Professor Utonium from The Powerpuff Girls, has suffered a stroke and is largely unable to speak. That's oh, man, that is heartbreaking. Yeah, that's incredibly tragic. You know, he's an icon in, in voice acting, and it's just horrible to hear. It's cruel. Yeah, his is the voice I like to read in sometimes when I'm reading, like, narration. <laughs> I feel like everybody just slips into it just because he is so good. That's what we know as good narration, good voice acting in general. Tragic. He's got to have had, like, a million voice credits. Because Utonium, that's an iconic voice. 255 credits. Wow. He will be Yoda and Qui-Gon and Admiral Akbar in the upcoming Lego Star Wars The Skywalker Saga. Still getting those Star Wars credits in. I'm just hoping he can make a speedy recovery as, as far as he can. I had no idea that he was Takeo from Call of Duty Zombies. Wow, I didn't know that either, but I guess I'm hearing it in my head now, and it makes complete sense. He'll also be forever immortalized as the announcer for The Eric Andre Show. Oh, wow, That's right, yeah. he is, yeah. Man, I'm just, I'm wishing him comfort and, like I said, as swift and complete of a recovery as, as he can get. He is Lego Indiana Jones. Pretty sure Lego Indiana Jones doesn't talk. No, but he grunts, Seamus. <laughs> oh, does he, does he really do the grunts? Yeah, he really does the grunts for Lego Indiana Jones. Wow. And those grunts are copyrighted, baby. Those are Disney's grunts, don't you dare. <laughs> ah! <laughs> Speaking of Disney and copyright, let's talk public domain, boys. Yeah, big news. Every year on January 1st, which was yesterday for us, new works enter the public domain. So, January 1st, 2020, all the works from the year 1925 entered the public domain, and that includes F. Scott Fitzgerald's book The Great Gatsby, plus silent films like Buster Keaton's Go West and Harold Lloyd's The Freshman. So you're telling me I can remake The Great Gatsby if I want to? Yep, you can do a stage play, you could do a movie, a lot of people are campaigning right now for the Muppets to do one. Yes, I've seen that. (laughs) That's going to open the doors for a lot of people creatively. I know there are already several books out from different characters' perspectives, stuff like that. Finally, my Great Gatsby fanfiction 
will be shared with the world. <laughs> you won't get copyright claimed. I'm really happy to hear. Like you said, we kind of get new public domain opportunities every year. But now that we're getting a little farther into the 20th century here for public domain, we're going to, you know, people are starved for content as we talk about like every week. So maybe we'll get some really genuinely interesting reimaginings of this stuff. Like You know, like you said, there could be some fun Muppets, which I would watch every day because that sounds hilarious. You know, even the more contemporary, like Leonardo DiCaprio, Great Gatsby, has me thinking about how a lot of these awesome classics can be remade into something that can be experienced by people who would have largely never even heard of it. Not to mention something like every high school junior that has to read The Great Gatsby is going to be able to get a way cheaper copy now or even legally download a PDF of it if they need to. Oh yeah. There are more implications outside of this than just like cool art practical implications for people trying to consume that media let's move on to our main segment disney pixar's soul you like jazz honestly i really do like jazz me too and i think that's one of the major (laughs) factors and why i really really liked soul i'm right there with you man i really enjoyed this movie yeah i was blown away it's maybe one of my favorite pixar movies that's come out in i don't know since like toy story 3 however long ago that was also i know pixar's adage has always been like we make family movies but does this have any pretext at all of being for children (laughs) yeah right (laughs) i mean i was gonna say somebody needs to check on Pixar, because they just keep making movies about death and, like, psychology and things that are very heavy for what would be considered for children. Kids can watch this. I think they'd get they get it, right? On the one hand, I think it is really important for kids to watch things that scare them and that expose them to things that are emotionally turbulent. But I think this would go over the heads of a lot of kids. Like, my five-year-old cousin, right, who likes... Pixar movies a lot. I do not think would get very much out of this movie. You don't want him to question his life and his place in it? <laughs> think about what death means and how... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm already maybe getting into some spoilery stuff, so I don't want to go too far. Well, I think that this movie is really important for, in the same way that Inside Out is a way for kids to kind of process negative emotions and, like, that they have a spectrum of emotions. I think Soul is kind of the next step from that, that showing older kids, you know, that are starting to grapple with these more adult issues. So, like, maybe even teenagers, really, is what I'm describing. Yeah. I'm right there with you, Shams, trying to avoid getting into too much, like, spoiler talk, and we will, of course, touch back on this once we do break that spoiler dam. But I thought a lot about during this movie, especially during, um, there's certain analogies that are made about how when you're a kid, you're, you're always thinking about, like, being an adult or, like, being older. Or, like, what's it going to be like when I'm older? Or when I'm older, I'm going to do this. And then as you get older, you're just like, I still just feel like me. Like, I still feel like the same Garrett, right? But now I just have adult problems to deal with instead of kid problems, you know? Yeah. There's not some magical breakthrough moment where you feel different. It's about, like, what you put into it. And I think that is a really important lesson for kids to learn. But I also think that this definitely shoots higher in terms of age 
than most Pixar films do. Once again, we were talking about this before the show, but that Pete Docter is one of the most emotionally attuned filmmakers working today, and that his films have such a clarity and sincerity and feeling of collaboration. I just am so blown away that he is able to keep turning out these fantastic films because he's directed Up, Inside Out, Soul, and Monsters, Inc., and he also wrote Wally. Yeah, he's fantastic. He's great at conveying these really complex themes and concepts and still having it be palatable. It still makes sense. There's still a story you can follow and characters, but you never lose sight of what the message is he's trying to get across, what that theme is. And, of course, just the absolute entertainment factor that he brings to these heavy topics that even if you are maybe a little younger and you're not quite fully grasping all of the deep themes that he's putting into his work, that it's still really entertaining, it's always funny. Even if you're not getting everything that he's putting down, you still feel so much of that heart in the end. Narrowing it down, obviously, to soul is, like, I don't use this word lightly, It's I think it's a masterpiece. And it's this bizarre combination of, like, Inside Out and 2001 and Defending Your Life and just searching for the unknowable in everyday life. Yeah, this movie's kind of in the same vein as The Good Place, just a philosophy textbook <laughs> disguised as a movie. Because this has got to be the most metaphysical Pixar's ever gotten. I kept thinking during the movie, it's like if that one abstract scene in Inside Out <laughs> was a whole movie. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I agree, Ricardo. Because Coco's version of death is much more concrete and easier to kind of grapple with like it feels much more like real life than the world that soul is creating well you see that's death for for mexicans that the death in this one that's for everyone else (laughs) (laughs) clear clear dividing line what other things do you guys have to say before we go into spoilers yeah final spoiler free thoughts i think this is one of my favorite Pixar movies now. I think I can safely say that. Just everything it brings to the table is fantastic. The music, the animation was like kind of messing with my head a little bit. It looked so oh, just how good. good it was. Like the just how they were doing the lighting on the animation and I don't know. It, it was definitely very impressive and I'll probably watch it again in not too long. On a technological level, everything that they're doing just amazing. Like I, I'm trying to think of a, another movie that's looked this good i think probably the last pixar movie soul dares to ask the question what if the amazing technology in toy story 4 was used for a good movie (laughs) first before we move into spoilers we have to do our double feature i mean ricardo kind of brought it up before but i was thinking about i know it's not a movie either but the good place has such an interesting idea of the afterlife that mixes in the comedy and the like consequences of living life in a way that you are maybe unsatisfied with so maybe like i don't know jumping right into the good place after watching this or vice versa yeah mine's kind of a a no-brainer i even said it uh before for a little bit just pair this up with coco they're both pixar dealing with death and how that affects us all and you know you get to see you know a little bit of the afterlife you're not getting it's not for you (laughs) yeah i like that Um, one ricardo that's a good one i mentioned this earlier but the albert brooks movie defending your life which I would say this movie took 
a lot of inspiration from in the way it deals with death, including its opening sequence, actually, which feels very similar to the Defending Your Life opening sequence. And it was also, I would say, a pretty big influence on The Good Place. So you guys should watch it. It's coming to Criterion soon. Oh, nice. It is spoiler time. So everyone's favorite part of this movie, Terry, right? I loved the <laughs> Terry was my man and or woman and or dimensional being. Do you mean Jerry? I love them all. Just like the weird Picasso overlapping singular line beings that are like right next to these beautifully animated and rendered 3D like puffballs with these ethereal mist elements around them. It's just such an interesting juxtaposition of animation. And I also think they were all hilarious. So that adds a lot. I was watching Disney Plus has some extras for Soul streaming, which I highly recommend going and checking out. And they were talking about how they designed the Jerry's and Terry's. And one of the people in the art department made wire sculptures. And when they were trying to figure out how to make them, like, kind of move and animate, the reference they looked at wasn't just, like, moving the wire from the wire sculpture. It was moving a light in front of the wire sculpture and watching how the shadows changed and overlapped. Oh, that is very cool. It's brilliant. Because, yeah, a lot of that movement is what kept me so mesmerized with the Jerry's and the Terry's, is just how they were able to keep that such a seemingly simple design and make it move like I've never seen before. And I guess that makes sense that they were doing shadow play to, to get that right. It's so good. We've got Joe Gardner, a jazz musician who is stuck teaching middle school band, not really where he wants to be, potentially getting his big break from a former student, and promptly dies, but manages to escape going to the great beyond by going to the great before, which is where untethered souls gain their personality and find their spark, which is just such a brilliant concept, and I can't even imagine how you would even begin to conceptualize and visualize that space. I don't think I've ever seen that before, just the concept of what you are before you're even born. I think part of the reason that's because how do you visualize that? And Seamus was just talking about how good the design of the Jerry's is. And the idea that they move in these, like, impossible, ethereal ways, that they they move like shadows, not like physical objects. And that in the same behind-the-scenes thing I was talking about earlier, they mentioned how a lot of their inspiration for the way it looked came from World's Fairs and kind of like, what if there was a World's Fair, but it was edgeless? Like, they kept using the word edgeless. Like how everything it just kind of gradients off into each other. God, that's just so impressive. Yeah, I guess I could see that with the little puffballs since you don't have an actual physical form. They're always just kind of floating off a little bit. I really liked the souls. I thought they were really cute. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm sure you could buy a plush at the oh, Disney yeah, store. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> that feels a little weird, right? Disney selling souls. <laughs> oh, God. They're selling ours because we already gave them say, to them. Is that not completely <laughs> on point? <laughs> it's not interested in the question of what happens after you die, which is what I almost said before spoilers when I was talking about the difference between it and something like Coco or Defending Your Life, is that it's interested in what makes you you while you're living. Yeah, and that that is something that Same, I... It, 
was pretty surprised about just the amount of time on Earth versus the amount of time in this like middle ground way station of afterlife. Like I was under the impression that they were going to be those little blue puffballs for like 90% of the entire movie. I was really glad they weren't, I mean, not that I didn't love being in The Great Before, but that it is such a beautifully rendered world, and I was so invested in Joe and his problems immediately that I'm really glad that we spent so much time with him in his real world. It honestly kind of reminded me of It's a Wonderful Life. Where when people talk about the movie, they talk about the segment where George wishes he'd never been born. Like, that's the majority of the movie, when really that's a very, very small part of the movie. And most of the movie is just spending time with George Bailey and getting to know his life and his problems and the people in his life. And the supernatural element of, like, the afterlife or the pre-life or whatever is only a vehicle that allows him to go on the journey of self-discovery that he's on. Yeah, in the same wheelhouse, I think this is probably a good enough time to bring it up as any, about not having them not stay like little puffballs through the whole thing. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't bring this up. The The annoying trend of people of color in animation not being able to remain people of color for the re- majority of their movie, which has happened enough times to where it's become a very noticeable trend. Yeah, Princess and the Frog, or uh, that spy movie with Will Smith where he's a pigeon. Spies in or even disguise, like Brother Bear. Ricardo. <laughs> there we go. Soul specifically, you're right, I think, is, is is very right in trying to curb that trend. It does curb it a little. It doesn't entirely bypass it. We'll get to oh, that in yeah. a second. But it does do a really good job in other regards. I don't want to take credit away from from Pixar because I know that they talk to a lot of African-American cultural scholars and diversity scholars and like really put an emphasis on making sure that their portrayals of different cultures and religions and ethnicities weren't problematic. They even brought on a person as a consultant, but he added so much to like the, the feel of the movie and the diversity that I think they bumped him up to either co-director or co-writer. Oh yeah, okay. I was going to bring that up too. So who you're talking about is Kemp Powers, who yes, he was brought on as a consultant and he contributed so much that he eventually got a co-director credit. Wow. So all of that to say is, I do feel like Pixar did their homework and I don't want to take that away from them. But at the same time, reading about the history of the way that this movie was developed, it sounds like a lot of the story beats were already in place before the decision was made to make Joe a person of color. Yeah, I tend to agree more with you. I don't have a a huge issue with this movie, but I just feel like we we should at least talk about it a little bit since it is such a... It comes up when you talk about this movie. Oh, I think... It absolutely should be discussed, Ricardo, and thank you for bringing it up. I wasn't sure when to bring it up, but I will say I did have the thought that Tina Fey had get outed her way into (laughs) Joe's body. Damn, that's exactly what that was. (laughs) Also, okay, so we haven't talked about 22 at all yet, but a lot of the takes that I'm seeing on this movie are making the assumption that 22 is a white woman when the movie specifically goes into the fact that 22 is without gender and without, like, it wasn't assigned a person yet at all. And she does outright say that that's not even her voice. You just yeah, choose exactly. it it's annoying. Yeah, exactly. Just, I wanted to bring that up real quick right after we said that. 
I will say the scenes where it's Joe Gardner, but with Tina Fey voice did make me a little un- uncomfortable. That's not for any real problem. That's just for, for me. It just didn't sit 100%. That doesn't detract from my enjoyment of the movie, but I will just say that. The scene where he's talking to his mom, well, it's really 22 talking to Joe's mom. It was a nice decision, even though it did, you know, it definitely was pushing the suspension of disbelief with how quickly 22 was talking and the way that Joe's body language was expressing. But I really liked the fact that they let us see that scene as if it was just Joe talking to his mom and we didn't have to spend the entire time with the cat talking at Joe's voice to 22 talking and, you know, yeah, of course. you get what I'm saying. For anyone that doesn't know, I don't think we covered it. Seamus, you want to break down who 22 is exactly? Yeah, we kind of touched on it a second ago, but 22, all of the souls in the great before we find out are just numbered, as if they're just like kind of being churned out to fill the population of Earth, and 22, presumably the 22nd soul ever created by the universe, has been basically stuck in the great before you seminar of their own volition because they have no interest in going to earth kind of bouncing around from mentor to mentor as each one of these new souls gets some very accomplished or famous uh mentor that kind of guides them through to find their spark but our friend 22 really doesn't even want a spark doesn't really understand like the need to leave the great before there's all this negative stuff that they know about life on earth and that's kind of where a lot of the hijinks comes from when they are inevitably brought down to earth with joe i haven't read this anywhere although i've kind of looked for it i'm assuming that 22's name is a reference to catch 22 and that the only way that she finds out that life is worth living is by living life Yeah, that makes sense. I I didn't even put that together. When they are both down on Earth again, and 22 is kind of getting those earthly experiences that make life worth living, I thought that was just, like, genuinely a wonderful idea. Just, like, 22 watching the helicopter seeds, or whatever they're called, like, flutter down through the sky from the trees, and, you know, eating pizza. It's just... I feel like that is where it hooks back up to the more family side of things. 22 is kind of teaching Joe that there is, though jazz may be his his spark, like there's so much more in life to enjoy, including, you know, branching out from the norm and finding the things that are kind of hidden away in the, in the underbelly of what you can actually do with your everyday life. Like not talking about jazz to your barber for once. Totally roasting <laughs> that other guy who's trying to talk smack. Paul, as played by David Diggs. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I really expected Paul to have some kind of third act payoff, like where all of the trauma he's endured is, you know, resolved. But no, he is just left a blubbering mess in an alleyway after seeing the afterlife. I smell no a kidding. spinoff. With him and Wall Street guy who gets his soul back and, like, rips off his office. Which I thought was a great throwaway <laughs> bit there. That is tremendous. That's yeah. an interesting bit. You don't have to die to get your soul, you know, kind of in uh, whatever that was be- to become a lost yeah, soul. Yeah, I guess they kind of they kind of touch on that too with the fact that Joe is in a coma in a hospital uh, when he's in the great before. 
there is something there to that. Just like the idea that death is not the only gateway to moving on like that, where you can kind of have a middle ground. That one guy gets like... there through flipping a sign, and I love that guy, and I can't remember his name. I was about to say, I'm glad you brought him up, my <laughs> favorite character. street sign-flipping yogi that can, like, achieve enlightenment and guide people through. His name <laughs> is Moonwind. Thank you, Moon Seamus. was very fun. Loved him and his whole weird meditation <laughs> yeah. pirate crew. Well, Seamus, it's not the afterlife, though. It's just where souls that are lost Right, that's, like, go. the only part of this form of afterlife where there seems to be kind of a negative idea. Even, like, the big conveyor belt into the into the light seems like kind of an ambiguous idea but this is like definitively like monster souls that are monsters souls that have been consumed by right, monsters. yes they're like wrapped in shadow beasts that hopelessness and despair have driven them to this point that is i think the most adult part of this film when we see 22's inner thoughts her anxieties the verbal beratement that she's taken over her millennia of being taught and the fear of i'm not good enough it's just a really dark place to be and like it's good that we have films that can grapple with those emotions in a such direct an accessible way. I was lamenting earlier the fact that there's no third act payoff for Paul, but in general, I think this movie's resistance to having a cutesy wrapped in a bow ending is really admirable because in a lesser film, we would have seen Joe's life after his journey, you know, and him teaching students or not playing jazz or playing jazz or whatever. You know, we would have seen that. We would have had a cutesy moment where 22 shows up and he knows it's 22, but 22 yeah, doesn't yeah. remember, you know. And the resistance. I will say I am kind of curious as to where 22 ended up. But that is the beauty of the film is that 22 can be anything they want to be. And I also like the idea that Joe has had this profound impact on this person that will not remember him. Yeah, I almost had a feeling, I definitely wasn't upset or anything that we didn't get that kind of earth meeting of them again, but I, I sure was expecting it, so I'm I'm glad that subversion of my expectations kind of left me with a, it's, you know, hopeful, not, not quite disappointed, but like, kind of thinking about what if they decided to go that direction, how could they have, you know, brought that full circle to them back in New York, eating pizza together, playing some jazz or whatever. It gives that... You know, feeling of unsure and exciting mystery that they kind of go into about, like, what makes that life on Earth really special and interesting. And I wasn't upset by how they ended it at all. Because I also think it would have brought in all of these themes and questions about it would have made the world and the universe feel so much smaller and brought in the ideas of, like fate and predestination which are not there as yeah. the movie is now it is a really brilliant admirable choice that i can only imagine how hard the creators had to push back against studio notes saying that they should add yeah there's definitely a version of this movie that could have gone where like he runs into basically real tina fey in new york at the end and it's just kind of like a big Ah, look at that. Full circle. Everybody's happy and together. But 
That would have been a very different feeling. <laughs> Did we talk about everything? I mean, we could talk for hours about this film and not talk about everything, but I think we hit the points that we should hit. Yeah, I think you know, so. I... I am right there with you, Sham, so I'm going to have to watch it again soon, because there is so much to process and so much to yeah, I was gonna... think about. It's fantastic music, fantastic animation, a real thinker. It's quality. Can't wait to see what death-centric afterlife Pixar film comes out next. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about the history of copyright, the public domain, and, of course, the House of Mouse Disney's involvement in it. We talked in our news today about how everything from 1925 is now in the public domain, but, you know, it used to not always be such a long gap between something being created and something going into the public domain. Back in the day, under the 1909 Copyright Act, something created was entitled to 56 years of copyright protection before it entered the public domain. The idea being that as long as the creator is probably profiting off of their creation, the protection of copyright is helping them make sure that they're making money off of it still. Now, in the 70s, leading up to when Mickey Mouse would enter the public domain after his first appearance in 1928's Steamboat Willie, Disney lobbied really, really hard to reshape the Copyright Act to be closer to Europe's copyright regulations, leading Congress to add an additional 19 years to the protections, making it 75 years before something created would enter the public domain. So that extended Mickey Mouse's protection until 2003, but guess what? When we came up on the turn of the century, Disney got itchy again, and in 1997 made a total of almost $200,000 of campaign contributions in addition to personal lobbying from Disney's then-CEO Michael Eisner to pass in Congress the Copyright Term Extension Act, which added another 20 years to copyright before it entered the public domain, bringing the grand total to 95 years, almost doubling the original 1909 Copyright Act's length of time. So, the public domain essentially allows any entity to process, retool, remake, republish the work without having to pay any kind of licensing fee or royalties. So, it's really good for creators, it's really good for consumers who are trying to buy cheaper versions of books, or even, you know, if you go onto iBooks on your iPhone or iPad, you can get tons of free public domain books. And it's really hypocritical that Disney is the one responsible for all of these public domain delaying efforts because so much of their back catalog, their history, their classic films, Snow White, Cinderella, all come from the public domain. Mickey is protected until 2023. And it seems like... Here's the thing, though. Copyright protection of Mickey Mouse is only specific to the Steamboat Willie version of Mickey Mouse. So no other version of Mickey Mouse is going to enter the public domain in a couple years. Because Steamboat Willie is entering the public domain, not the entire concept of Mickey Mouse. So only Mickey Mouse as he appears in Steamboat Willie will be entering the public domain. And in addition to that, it's not like you're just going to be able to have a screening of Steamboat Willie because you know, if you want to watch Steamboat Willie, where are you going to get it? Disney Plus? Disney has the rights to that specific 
restoration of Steamboat Willie. So if you're going to have a public screening, you're not going to be able to screen that restoration, so you better hope you have an original 1928 film print of Steamboat Willie that you want to exhibit. Also, I'm not even super confident that you will be able to put that version of Mickey Mouse on merchandise, because, as anybody who's seen a Walt Disney Animation production over the last few years will tell you, the logo for Walt Disney Animation is Mickey Mouse from Steamboat Willie. So even if you put that character on merchandise, even though technically from Steamboat Willie, you aren't breaking copyright law, they might still be able to send you a cease and desist anyway because you're infringing on their logo. Yeah, I know Disney is insanely notorious for their crackdown on copyright stuff. So even if there is some kind of public domain, they're going to get their lawyers and their their big legal team to do whatever they can to just nix anything that's going to be profitable for anybody else. The House of Mouse always wins, and they have the money and the team of lawyers to make sure, even if technically you are under fair use, they're going to crack you down anyway. All right, let's move on to our pop quiz for the episode. Pop, 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 pop quiz. Ricardo is in the lead 4-3, to three, having won our pop quiz from last week. That means, Seamus, it is your turn to pick the category. Let's see if I can keep this, this tight race going. Your options for today are Soul or The Great Gatsby. Ricardo, when's the last time you read The Great Gatsby? I read it every night, one sitting. (laughs) Damn it. All right, I'm going The Great Gatsby anyway. (laughs) You guys know the rules, but for those of you playing along at home, whichever one of you says the correct answer first gets the point. If neither of you can get it, or you say it at the exact same time, we move on to our other category as the tiebreaker. Okay, now for your question. In what decade was the first cinematic adaptation of The Great Gatsby made? The 60s. The 50s. Was it the 40s? The 40s. The 30s. It could not have been the 20s. It absolutely was, and neither of you are getting it. That was (laughs) not, that was Dirty Pool. It was 1926, just a year after the book came out. Oh my god, that what? that's crazy. I would not have, if we didn't guess every decade in the 20th century, I would not have gotten that. It's now a lost silent film. William Powell, of the Thin Man fame, was George Wilson in it. No kidding. Only a one minute trailer survives. That's all the footage we have from that movie. I'm ready to hear the other questions so we can try to redeem ourselves here. Okay, the category is Soul. Members of what famed band did the music for the great before portions of the movie Soul? The Roots? Oh man, I really thought you guys were going to get this one. God, I don't even remember what the music sounded like in the great before. Okay. What was I'm... Trent Reznor in Coldplay? Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> I'm going to call it. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of shocked. I really thought you guys were... I thought this was a gimme. It was done by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails. What? Ah, I knew it was Trent Reznor. He does everything. Damn. Because, yeah, he does, like, the social network, you know. Could not remember what band he was in. It's another week of you guys not getting it. I and... said Trent Reznor. I should get it. Oh, wait, did you say Trent Reznor? No, you didn't. Yeah, I was trying to think of, like, what has Trent Reznor been in? I couldn't remember his band. You said I think I said Coldplay. You said Radiohead and Coldplay. I'm going to the tape. If Ricardo did, in fact, say Trent Reznor, he has the point. He is up 5-3. to three. If he did not say Trent Reznor, then 
It's draw. Let me know, and I will make an official <laughs> social media post condemning myself. The audience will know. Those of you listening to this will, of course, know, because you would have just heard Ricardo say Trent Reznor. And you'll just have heard my deafening silence. That'll be a fun adventure for us to go on later, boys. I'm a Ricardo, probably congratulations. Yeah, probably. Your extra point. Yeah, boy, I'm so close to cashing in for the, the PS5 that we're competing for. Ugh. Garrett's house is just like a Chuck E. Cheese ticket counter where we're going to trade this in for his stuff. <laughs> so does that mean that when you come to redeem your points, I have to make the... <laughs> <laughs> yes. The whole time. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's 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 save the rec center, guys. Now it's time for Save the Rec Center, where we give you our recommendations for the week. Ricardo, what do you got? Oh, man, I'm going first. Cool. Uh, HBO Max is updated, and they added my childhood to it. They put in Ed, Ed, Nettie, The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, and uh, Codename Kids Next Door. They're all streaming now, and I personally have never seen those streaming anywhere. Those have always been really hard to find, so that's good. But that's not my recommendation. My recommendation is the thing that you can't find that's still pretty hard. Does, do any of you remember The Grim Adventures of the KND? The Billy and Mandy Kids Next Door crossover oh special? god, yeah, I do remember that. I did that. not know about that. It's not currently on HBO Max, which I think is a shame. Because since those two are like right next to each other on the, the UI, I think that'd be fun. Just to have it branch out, because this connects to all the other old school Cartoon Network stuff they have on there. So if you want to check out this particular special, it's on YouTube right now, at least for free. Good pick, Ricardo. What do you got, Seamus? Well, I, this break, apparently, I'm trying to hit a lot of classic movies that I have somehow avoided my whole life. And the other day, me and my family sat down and watched Midnight Run with Bobby De Niro. I had an absolute blast watching that movie. I... I didn't really know what the tone was going in. I thought it was going to be more of a serious, like, bounty hunter movie with, with a lot less humor. But if you haven't seen it somehow, like like me very recently, Bobby De Niro is a bounty hunter and he's got to take this man on a planes, trains, and automobiles style cross-country road trip to get him into jail before midnight on whatever five they have five days to get across the country and they're being hunted by the mafia and the cops and the fbi and it's just a total blast a lot of fun totally classic great soundtrack weird amounts of like really good action car chases it's it's everything you need in a good 80s movie so very fun movie i believe it's on hbo max i really want to check it out i love charles gruden i love robert de niro what more could i want exactly what do you got garrett my family this week has been rewatching the Mission Impossible series. Ooh. And, oh baby, I mean, skip to, obviously, if you really want, watch the opening credits for two on YouTube. <laughs> but they are just so good. I remember when I was a kid watching on repeat my VHS tape of the first Brian De Palma Mission Impossible. I have loved this franchise since then. Each installment just amps it up. I had this thought the other day, and I would like to submit it to you boys. Is Mission Impossible the thinking man's Fast and the Furious? I was just about to bring up a comparison to Fast and the Furious, so maybe. We are going to have a wonderful time doing those, including the second one, when 7 and 8 come out next year. 
I'm ready for it. I, I'm I've been waiting for a big old marathon. I think it's gonna be great. Well, that is my official rec center, the Mission Impossible series. They're really hard to find streaming for some reason. Like almost none of them are streaming, and when they are, they're on like different services. Oh, weird. But I encourage you to rent them. I of course have the Blu-rays because I'm a man of honor, <laughs> but. Really, I highly, highly recommend them. Get them from your local library. Support your local library. It's a good bonus rec center, your local public library. I think that is just, like, the underlying rec center. Like, the show's rec center is support your local library. This week's sponsor is the public library system? They can't spare the money, Seamus. <laughs> yeah, that's a honorary sponsor. Pro bono. All right, join us next week when we talk about the new entry into the... Shark Boy and Lava Girl franchise, We Can Be Heroes. We're going to have our first guest, Diego, from the Live Action Remake podcast, is coming over. Really excited to chat with him about this new movie. If you want to reach the show, you can tweet us at PCR underscore podcast. You can email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on Soul. What did you think? Are you excited for We Can Be Heroes next week? Let us know. Goodbye, everybody.